Well, as I mentioned, today we're going to be looking at Psalm 34. Uh, but before we actually get into the text, I want to give some basic background information that provides a, a little bit of context behind not only the structure, but the situation this psalm was written in. Now, for those of you who are into this sort of thing, the psalm was actually written as an acrostic. And what that means is simply that in the Hebrew, each new line begins with a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet. What this shows us, though, is this is not just something that David sat down to write without much thought to it. He considers the style, the art, and the beauty of it, the form of it. And so he expresses these deep theological truths that we will see today in a very beautiful, beautiful way. Now, the first half of the psalm, that is verses 1 through 10, are actually written in the style of a hymn. It's a praise. Uh, It's a praise to God that's highlighting three wonderful truths about who God is and what he has done, but specifically in David's own life. He talks about how God is great, how he is good, and how he is one who guards those who fear him. Out of this praise, though, David actually invites all who hear this and for us who read it to join in this praise to God for these things. And yet, even here, David doesn't stop. In fact, he invites all of us to join in and actually experience the greatness, the goodness, and the guardianship of the Lord for ourselves. Now, he does so by introducing us to this key behind it all, if you will, or the secret, quote-unquote, if you will, which ultimately is that the, those who fear the Lord will experience these things. This is really the central idea of the passage here. So in the second half, that's what we see in verses 11 through 22. David takes now on the role of a tutor. He teaches us what it means to fear the Lord. And again, it's written in the style of traditional wisdom literature. So if you would, think of like the book of Proverbs or Ecclesiastes as we go through the second half, because it's just going to help you understand his points here. Now, wisdom literature contains a general truth. And what that simply means is that there are always exceptions to the general rule, right? And yet they do not invalidate the rule. Well, the general truth here is that there is a blessing for those who fear the Lord. He says it, that they will live long life and see many good days. It's also important to know, though, that this psalm was written in a time of just deep despair for David. The heading of the psalm tells us, if you would look at it, that it's written when he feigned madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed, being David. And that's a reference to 1 Samuel chapter 21, Uh, specifically in verses 10 through 15, but really it's the whole surrounding context. And so if we take the circumstances of David's life here, uh, we know that there's so much that's happening that are just, again, making for the darkest days of his life so far. David's true friend and confidant, Jonathan, has told him that his father Saul has a plot to kill him. David flees with only the clothing on his back, and he has no food or water, no weapons to protect himself, and he's utterly alone at the end of it all. He comes to a priest in a town called Nob, and he convinces this priest to give him of the showbread to eat, and ultimately the sword of Goliath, whom he had just killed not too long before. But a servant to Saul is present, and he sees everything unfold before him. And then David actually flees to a place named Gath because of that. Now this is the land of the Philistines, whose king is named Achish. And that's who's referred to in the psalm under the title of Abimelech. Well, 1 Samuel 21 tells us that he is recognized by the Philistines, by the servants of this king, and they know that it's this man who killed their champion, Goliath. And the text tells us David took these words to heart, and he was very much afraid of the king. And so what does he do? Well, as we see here, he pretends to be a madman. If you look at the context of it, he actually pretends to be insane. He scribbles 
markings on the doors of the gates, and he has drool running down his mouth and all over his beard. So he literally puts on just a great show of craziness. But they still know who this man is. And so they bring him before the king because this is a prime opportunity to kill David, right? He just killed Goliath, and so let's get our revenge. But the king sees David in all his raving splendor, and he turns to his servants and says, why in the world have you brought a madman before me in my house? Look, I'm not lacking in crazy people, so get him out of here. And so David leaves Gath, he's unscathed, and he goes to a place called Adullam, and he hides in caves, and then out of this writes this psalm. Now you can imagine, at least in some sense, if you were in his situation, kind of the dread and anxiety you might have in light of all this, couldn't you? He has King Saul, who is hot on his trail. He's trying to kill him. He's already tried to kill him. And yet he's just narrowly escaped the death or his own death at the hands of the Philistines. But more than this, no one is with him at this time. He has no friends or family surrounding him. He's all alone with his thoughts. He's no provisions, no weapons, really. He's got one weapon, but it's a sword of Goliath, which maybe by this time he can hold well. But he doesn't wallow in despair and worry about what may come. What this psalm shows us is he's actually moved to praise God, but he reminds himself all throughout it of this most vital truth, which is that the fear of the Lord brings life. Now, for David, this is not merely a doctrine that he should profess. It's not something that is just sitting around in his head. It's not a hope that he thinks is even true just for himself. It's not something he goes back and forth on either, which is pretty magnificent if you think about it. It's a truth that he's ultimately lived through and he's experienced at the most intimate level. And so it's a balm to his soul. It's what keeps him going. Look, in the midst of a bleak time, this is a truth that he looks to and holds on to for dear life. But David is not content that he alone experiences reality. And that's the neat thing. He invites every single person that not only hears him presently at his day, but in all the days to come, who reads this psalm to experience this reality and joy for themselves. And so he calls upon them and us to fear the Lord, because it is ultimately the fear of the Lord which brings God's blessing. Now, my hope then is that as we go through this psalm, you'll not only see this, but that as you're looking at the circumstances you find yourselves in right now, that you would be encouraged, that this would be a balm to your soul, but you would also be renewed in your hearts to fear the Lord. The reason, specifically, as David gives us here, is that you would experience the blessing of God. And so with that brief introduction, let's look at verse 1. Now, much like many of his other psalms, David begins this psalm with praise, and this is ultimately the foundation of what it means to fear the Lord. So notice David uses a series of words here, and they're all meant to invoke this attitude of uh, not only thanksgiving, but really a heart of trust and joy and delight and savoring in the God of his salvation. And notice again, verse 1, he says, He will bless the Lord at all times, and his praise will be continually on his lips. Uh, He is resolved. He's actually fixed to do this very thing. He's determined No matter what anyone else may say, no matter what anyone else may do, no matter even the circumstances, that he will bless the Lord. And so it will not be merely during the good times, if you will, the times of prosperity and peace. He's not going to have a heart, therefore, that longs for the good old days or even for the better days to come. 
No, David is actually resolved, even during the dark days of his life, to praise his God. He knows that murderous traitors and enemies are seeking to kill him, and yet, what can he do but praise? He doesn't despair. Again, his heart overflows to praise. The reason for this is simply that he recognizes God is worthy of praise in all things and on all days. Secondly, he speaks to the fact that he will be boasting, but specifically he will boast in the Lord in verse 2. Now, when we think of boasting, it typically conjures up negative things in our minds, doesn't it? We think of those who are prideful or who are self-absorbed. They sing their own praises. They sing of their own glory. And yet David does the opposite here. He boasts in Yahweh. It's not merely this surface-level boasting either that he speaks of. It really resonates to the deepest and most intimate part of his soul. Again, it's this is what keeps him going. He feels it in the depths of his bones, and what he can do is simply not contain himself. Now, this sheds some light on how David then is able to actually rejoice in the hard days. For him to boast in the Lord is ultimately to recognize God for who he is, for what he has done, for what he is doing, and then what he actually promises to do. But this has a specific intent. If you would look at the end of verse 2 to see what he says this will actually produce here. He says, the humble will hear it and rejoice. The humble will hear it and rejoice. In other words, it's not just about David. It will lead these other people, the humble, to savor, to delight in God with David. The humble, the afflicted, the suffering, or the destitute, they're going to hear of God's goodness in David's life, and they too are not only going to praise God, but they will actually be strengthened in their own faith. They're going to be reminded of God's goodness, that every single thing he does is good, and then they too will be moved to praise the greatness of their God. Now from there, in verse 3, he invites them to then boast in the Lord with him. He says, O magnify Yahweh with me, and let us exalt his name together. Well, the beautiful reality is that David's occasion for praise is not simply for David. Right? The, The unique work that God is doing in his life is not just for David. It's for all the people to praise God with him. He calls on them to give praise to God for what God has done, and he says, in light of all of this, that God deserves the glory. And this is a relatively simple principle that we do so often. I mean, think of all the times that God has answered your own prayers. Or perhaps you think of the times where he's answered the prayers of others you know, right? What do you do when that happens? Right? Do you rejoice in the gift that was given, or did it lead you to praise the one who gave it? Now, I've had the delight of hearing and seeing many of you do this. I think of even visiting some of the small groups. I mean, Tim, your small group was one of just praise over and over again of what God was doing, and that was fantastic. But I hear it of people all the time at Missio. Your praise is in God himself, and it does not mean that you don't give thanks for the gift, but rather you recognize in the midst of it that God is the one who is so good, that he is the one so richly blessing his children. Well, that's at the idea of what David is expressing here, that they realize, that they praise God for themselves. He is actually commanding them. It's not a suggestion. It's an actual command to give thanks to God because he is the very fountainhead of goodness itself. But it is out of his goodness, it is out of his kindness and mercy that all such blessings flow. But remember, 
This is David's heart in the midst of the trial. These are not the rosy days, the days filled with sunshine and butterflies, if you will. These are the days of hardship and adversity. These are the days in the cave of Adullam where he is surrounded by death and traitor. He's not calling God to give thanks then for just the good days. He's not telling God or these people, if you will, to give thanks for all the friends he has with him. That God has delivered the kingdom into his hands, that he's even free to walk about the land. He's not telling them that. He's commanding the people to make the name of the Lord great in his present hardship and distress. He says, God is still good. Even still, God is good. Even still, God does good. Well, he recognizes the blessings of God, great or small, in times of hardship or peace or individual or corporate, that is for us all, ultimately create an opportunity for the saints to lift the name of God up. When we lift the name of God up during the hard times, during the dark days, what happens? Well, we encourage others in their own faith. But more importantly, we give God the praise and glory that he is still due, no matter what the circumstances may be. And so it just leads me to ask, because I had to ask the question of myself, is how do I speak of God during the hard days? Is praise on my lips only on the days that I call good? The days that I call good? Or do I praise God regardless of what circumstances I find in my life? Do you do this? When, when pain and discomfort and despair are your constant companions, do you magnify the name of God? Well, David uses himself as an example here. right? He's a man that's played with many troubles. He has many afflictions. And yet, what does he say but that God has rescued them or him out of every one of them? And this, all of it, by the way, is just a revelation of what's already going on inside his heart when the trial hit. His confidence and hope was not in him having good days, beloved. His confidence and his hope rested in the God of his salvation. The trial didn't bring out anything new in David. It didn't bring out anything new. And in much the same way, trials don't bring out something new in us. All they do is reveal what's already in our hearts. In other words, trials just simply reveal what we truly believe and what we truly cherish. In other words, what we love. When hardship comes, the question is, what is my reaction? Am I one filled with worry and dread and despair? Or am I filled with praise? Do my lips sing of God's greatness in spite of the evil days? Or are they filled with complaint? Am I an encouragement to my brothers and sisters? Or am I a cautionary tale? Now, it's profoundly easy for us all to give God the thanks on the good days, isn't it? I mean, that just comes by exceedingly natural for us. But David's whole point here is that the fear of the Lord will produce a heart of thanksgiving and joy even during the dark days. But he does so much more than just sing of God's greatness here. He now invites his hearers to see the goodness of the Lord, which we now see in verses 4 through 7. Now, the next four verses here are best understood as two couplets, or two pairs of verses, if you will, 
that are working together to demonstrate this principle that can only be learned in the school of adversity, meaning that you must go through hardship. And that is that the Lord preserves and protects those who fear him. Notice that David says, or talks about his own personal experience here. He talks about God delivering him from every fear in verse 4. And then look and see in verse 5. He applies this same principle to the congregation. Again, look back at verse 4. And and here we find this simple testimony of God's goodness to David. David sought the Lord, which is just another way of saying that he earnestly prayed to God. And then lo and behold, what happens? God answered his prayers. The answer to those prayers, of course, course, is that the Lord delivered him from all his fears. Now, again, remember, David is still in the caves at Adullam. His family hasn't come just yet, nor have the 400 men that will stand with him against King Saul. We know that David isn't saying all of his troubles have suddenly vanished. So what does he say has actually taken place? The dread itself is gone. The fear is gone. Not the trial, but the fear. What we see is not a change of circumstance, but a change of heart towards the circumstances he's in. And the principle behind this is what we see in verse 5. He says, They looked to him and were radiant, and their faces will never be ashamed. Now, depending on what translation you may have, yours will either put this in the past tense or the present tense. And so some of yours will say they looked to him, like the NASB. They looked to him and were radiant. And others will say those who look to him are radiant. And I believe the second is actually the better translation here, simply because of what's being expressed in the Hebrew. But what David is actually saying here is that as you gaze intently on God, you will shine, you will beam, you will radiate with utter joy because you reflect the joy of God's presence. Then he talks about their faces not being brought to shame. And the idea here is that their, their countenance, in other words, what their face actually looks like, it will not fall in disappointment because God himself is their delight. Now, we've all seen when someone's face changes in an instant, right? You know, think of when you hear or see somebody hear really bad news. Or think of when you are laughing because somebody just fell in front of you, but then you realize they're actually really hurt. And so you go from laughter to concern really quickly because you're like, oh no, I shouldn't have laughed. But you also care for the person. Well, that's the idea here, is that the face just changes in an instant, if you will. The demeanor, instead of being one of a fallen face and of of much anguish, their demeanor, their face is actually joyful. It's beaming, it's radiant. And it's because the one constant, unchanging thing is not their circumstances, but God. The one thing that is the constant delight that they can delight themselves in is God. And so in all of it, David is just simply telling these people, look, I sought the Lord in prayer and he delivered me from my fears. I looked upon the Lord and he gave me joy and he has not put me to shame. My countenance is not downcast. If you do this too, if you seek Yahweh, you can also have joy. You will not be brought to shame if you seek him. For those who fear the Lord, there is no final shame. That's the beautiful thing he's telling them here. He does the same thing in verses 6 through 7. And Now notice again in verse 6, look down with me. David relays his experience of God saving him from every harm, 
And then in verse 7, he applies the same principle of salvation to the congregation. So notice what he says here. He says, this poor man cried, and he's the poor man, by the way. This poor man cried, and Yahweh heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles, or literally expressed evils. And here's the principle. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Now here David is actually talking about God legitimately rescuing him from his circumstances. It's not just the fear at this point. The incredible thing about this, though, at least what I find incredible, is that the first priority of God is not to fix David's life. It's not to fix his circumstances. The first thing he deals with is his heart. You know, David is filled with fear, right? He's so afraid of what the king might do that he just lets drool run down his beard and scribbles markings on the doors. He's ranting and raving like a madman. He's so focused on doing everything in his own power to escape those circumstances. But it seems like no matter what he does, he just makes it worse. That's so much like you and I, though, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, how much do you and I do that? Anytime a trial comes our way, we do everything we can to avoid it or to climb out of it and to flee and to flee back to safety and comfort. And yet, beloved, if God's first concern with David is his heart, how much more so you and I? Now, we'll touch on this a little bit more later towards the end here, but the reality is that life is one of constant hardship. The effects of sin are everywhere. Life is hard. To borrow a line from the Princess Bride, anyone who tells you differently is trying to sell you something, right? Life is hard. But the reality is that God is our joy and our delight. And if we place our joy and delight in Him, we will find that none of the evils that come our way can rob us of that joy and delight because it is in God himself. He promises to save us, and that, beloved, is a promise that we can take to the very end. It's a promise that we can take through the thick and thin and even in the midst of the darkest days of our lives. The reason for that is because our God is actually with us. Look with me now at verse 7. We see David speak to this reality. He says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, But it's not that he just encamps, is it? He rescues them. Now, the angel of the Lord is referring to actually God himself here. He's being physically present to protect and to rescue those who fear him. I don't have time to get into an exhaustive treatment on it, but it's just fascinating. He's actually talking about the pre-incarnate Christ himself. Now, we have references throughout the Old Testament that speak to the angel of the Lord, and in virtually every instance, if not every instance, This is the pre-incarnate Christ. One example we can think of is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? In the fiery furnace, there's a fourth along with them. That's Christ. That's the same thing being expressed here. The way David describes this, though, is that this is this continual activity, meaning it's not that God is just encamping at one point or another and then kind of goes and does what he wants to do, but that at all times, Christ himself is encamped around those who fear him. The Lord is constantly around his people, and he is this constant state of rescuing them from every harm. And in much the same way we saw in verse 5, David then tells us, the one who fears the Lord will be safe in his presence. 
Now that that's the key. That's the the quote unquote secret, if you will, is it's all of God's work. It's all of God's work designed for those who fear Him, and this is ultimately what the whole psalm is just building towards. Those who fear God will find in Him their every consolation, their every joy, their every protection, and as we see now in verses eight through ten, their every provision. Their every provision. Now look with me at verse 8. David invites them to experience the goodness of the Lord for themselves. Now there are two imperatives here. And what are imperatives? Anybody? You guys are awake? Two commands, right? Two commands that he gives here. They hear of his report of praise. They are told to sing God's praises with him. But now they are explicitly commanded to do two things. And the whole idea is that they taste this reality for themselves. The first command they are given is that they are to taste. And the idea is that they are to experiment with this or to test this for themselves. They are to discover God's greatness and his goodness, essentially by doing the same exact thing that David did. They are to gaze intently upon God. They are to seek him in prayer. The assumption behind this is that they may have just never done this before. They did not ask, and so they did not receive. And so they've never experienced the greatness and the goodness of God. They've never experienced it firsthand. And the idea, though, goes well beyond this mere casual sampling. It actually conveys a savoring, if you will. Now, you know when you have a really good meal and you slow down, right? You don't just kind of put it into your gullet so you could get the nutrients and move on with your day, you actually savor it. You taste it. You experience the food. You delight in it and give God thanks. That's the idea here. David is speaking of savoring and delighting in God's goodness in every single way. But he's saying for these guys, perhaps it's the very first time you've ever even done this. Now the command to see is experienced in conjunction with the tasting. Now here he speaks again of something greater than this casual look. It's an intense inspection of God's goodness. He says, devote much time and much energy to this task. Search it out. It is this tasting and, and seeing then of the Lord's goodness that ultimately is the blessed life he speaks to. That it's a blessed life of those who take refuge in him. He basically is saying that people who trust in the Lord will undoubtedly experience his goodness firsthand, but they will also enjoy the bliss of knowing they are safe and secure under the shelter of his wings. That truth is a constant wellspring of joy for them. Again, that truth will carry them through the darkest days. It's this active state of blessing, and all that means is simply that despite the circumstances, they will see his constant hand of protection and provision upon them. They may not have everything that they want, but they shall lack no need. And so they, like David, have every occasion to praise God's goodness because his goodness is never without evidence, beloved. It's never without the evidence of his loving care for those who fear him. And so in light of this, again, he invites them to experience now the provision of the Lord for themselves in verses 9 through 10. And notice he gives another command here in verse 9. He says, to those who are his saints or his holy ones, they are to fear him. 
And the reason he gives for why they should obey this command is incredibly practical and simple. Again, he says, for those who fear him, there is no want, there is no need. It's not this emotional response, but ultimately it is an intense trust and obedience and worship of this God who provides, who encamps around them, who protects them. Again, remember, David's not saying this from the banquet table. He's not surrounded by loyal men. He's not surrounded by friends. He's holed up in a cave. He has little food, little protection, and no one with him. But David says the Lord provides for those who fear him. And then he gives a practical example of what this looks like in verse 10. He says, The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. So it says, or so he says, even the best of predators go hungry, and yet the people of God lack nothing good. It's the same reality that Christ himself speaks of in the New Testament where he says, do not be anxious for anything, for anything. And all of us say, really? Anything? Not a thing, right? He says, no, do not be anxious for anything, but entrust yourselves to the Lord. Why? Because he gives every good gift to his children. And the idea is that if we seek him, if we are ones who fear him, we won't be left destitute. We're not going to be left on our own. He's not going to just simply let us starve and die. But even if that does happen to us, he's not going to let that take hold and be the final say, is it? Because we're promised a newness of life. The Lord cares for us more than anything else on the earth. Anything else. And do we believe that? Well, the wicked do not know this reality to be true. But for the saints, at least for the saints that David is identifying here, he says, they provide, or God provides for his every need. And if you look at your own life, have you not found this to be true? Just look at different aspects of your life. Look back and remember the ways that God has either protected you or provided for you. Now, there are moments I look back on our life, especially earlier on in our marriage, we we were without much money at many times, and some of that was due to our own folly, but some of that was just due to me not making much money. And one of those times, we had made a commitment, we talked about it and said, listen, I think the way that we can honor the Lord in our marriage is to have you stay at home and raise the kids, and so I don't want you to go to work anymore. Um, I was making maybe 15 bucks an hour. We had Silas at that point, he was a young guy, but we had ourselves to feed, we had a house, and we had all sorts of different bills. Things were often very tight, but we were convinced it was the right thing to do. Well, what happened one month after we paid all the bills is that we really had nothing left over. I think it was probably around this time of year, right? Around Christmas time. We were buying gifts for people, and I was stressed out because I'm like, I don't even know how we're going to spend this money. Where are we going to get it from? And yet... God provided where I had overtime at work and I was able to pay for gifts, but we had little food. And I mean, actually little food. Cans of olives and maybe some other stuff that we would never eat. And we had two weeks to go before I got another paycheck. And yet one day as Becca went out to grab the mail, what happened? But that somebody had dropped off an unmarked envelope with a gift card to a grocery store. Somebody just dropped it off. We didn't make the need known. 
I was too prideful to say anything about it. But somebody, through the prompting of the Spirit, gave us a gift card for groceries. I still don't know who did it. And this was, what, probably eight years ago? But the Lord provided. And that was the beautiful thing, is that my God saw that we had a need, and he met it. Well, he's always kind to us. He's always provided for us. But there are moments like that, and I'm sure you have them too, where you can see God's care upon you in a way that outshines many of those other times where you don't think about it. Well, David is saying that all of this can be true, not just for him, not just for a guy like me, but for all of us, for you. God knows our every need. He knows our need. If we're ones who fear the Lord, he says he will not leave us destitute. He will not forsake us in our time of need. He's actually a loving father. He loves us. All we need to do is ask. And so the question then is, are we one who fears the Lord? Well, the good news is is that David doesn't simply leave us here with a cliffhanger, if you will. We don't have to figure all of this out on our own. And we see that in verses 11 through 22, the second half now, of where he teaches us what it means to actually fear the Lord. Now, again, this whole section is proverbial-style wisdom. He's embodying this teacher and pupil relationship where he's saying with those who are less experienced that he's going to school them or teach them in the fear of the Lord. Now, notice in verse 11, he calls them his children. He commands them, come, my children, and, and listen, because I'm going to teach you what it means to fear the Lord. And so you can automatically see there's this, this, this fatherly affection for them. He actually loves them. He cares for them. He's not looking down on them because they don't fear the Lord. He wants to educate them in this. And so he pictures them as his children whom he loves. And he, he says, I want, in essence, I want to see you receive the blessing God has in store. I want to see you praise Yahweh. Now, all of it goes back to his earlier call to experience or to taste the goodness of the Lord for themselves. And the reason for this, or the motivation, is that God gets the praise. So what's David concerned with? Ultimately, in the ultimate sense, that God gets the glory. He's concerned with the glory of God. He knows that the one who fears God will sing of his praises regardless of what circumstances he finds himself in. And yet he knows that God is undoubtedly kind to his children as well. And so he says, in a nutshell, the more who fear the Lord, the more praise God gets. The idea is that it is through the fear of the Lord itself, they will rebound in praise to God. The reason for this is relatively simple. Those who fear him, the Lord protects, he provides for, and as we see at the end of this psalm, he will ultimately bring into the fullness of joy and life. But like any good father, he actually expects them to not simply hear his words, Right? It's not this, this stone-faced response where he's talking and it's kind of like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And we all know that. Who's had kids, right? Like, Sometimes you're like, just listen. That's what he's doing here. He's looking at all of his children, if you will, and he's saying, look, I want you to not simply listen, but to obey. Put it into practice. Apprehend these things by faith, but then let it be a faith that acts on the truths of Scripture. Ultimately, it's a faith he knows must carry consequences to it. As one commentator put it, it is a faith that recognizes that the good you enjoy from God 
goes hand in hand with the good that you do. In other words, it's a faith that recognizes there are no shortcuts, right? There's no shortcuts. If you want God's blessing, you must actually fear him. This is not a works-based salvation thing. This is just a basic principle of wisdom. David asks them then the rhetorical question in verse 12. He says, Who is a man who desires life and loves length of days that he may see good? Well, the appeal is for people who actually want to live a long life. They said, yeah, that's me. I, I like living. I want to see many good days. And so he says, if you desire to live, if you desire good days, you must fear the Lord. You must follow the way of life rather than the way of death. The basic premise then is that the fear of the Lord is, as the book of Proverbs says, the beginning of wisdom. And wisdom leads to long life. And a long life leads to seeing many good days. In other words, it's, it's the fear of the Lord which again is obedience to the teachings David is about to give them here, is what brings life and what brings blessing. And so he gives them four basic principles that flesh out what it means to fear the Lord here, which is what we see in verses 13 through 22. So look with me now at verse 13. We'll see the first principle of what it means to fear the Lord. Again, it's not this emotional response. It's a response of obedience, a response of duty and delight. Notice he says, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Now, these are overt commands, by the way. They're not suggestions. The instruction actually carries both a preventative side and a positive side, if you will. It involves both words and actions, but it's not just put these things off, but actually put these things on. We are to guard our tongues from evil and our lips from speaking deceit, right? That's the preventative side. We see this all the time in the book of Proverbs or other wisdom literature. Proverbs 18.6 tells us that the fool's lips bring strife and his mouth invites literal beatings. Proverbs 19.29 tells us that judgments are prepared for mockers and beatings for the back of fools. Proverbs 6.17 tells us that the Lord hates a lying tongue. And yet, conversely, the wise man's words are gracious. Ecclesiastes 10.12. The wise one guards his mouth and he protects his own life by doing so. Proverbs 13.3. And the pleasant words of a wise man are like a honeycomb. They're sweet to the soul and a healing to the bones. That's Proverbs 16.24. And likewise, he says, we are also to turn away from doing evil and do good instead. Again, we find this all throughout the Proverbs as well. Proverbs sixteen seventeen tells us that the way of the upright is to depart from evil. He who washes his way will preserve it. Again, Proverbs nineteen sixteen: he who keeps a commandment preserves his soul, but he who is careless in his ways will die. All throughout the book of Proverbs, we find similar things, don't we? We see the life of the fool and the life of the wise man contrasted. For the wise, that is those who fear the Lord, they will see God's blessing. They will ultimately find life. And just in a very practical sense, life will be much more pleasant for them. For the fool, for those who do not fear the Lord, they see God's cursing. They will ultimately find death if they fail to repent. And life is very unpleasant for the fool, isn't it? In all of this, the presumption is not merely that we simply keep from speaking and doing evil if we fear God. We will actually speak good. We will pursue good. And so it's not enough that we put off evil deeds, if you will. We must put on 
what the spirit or what the scriptures call the spirit fruit of the spirit right love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control the things that paul says against which there is no law and so david's instruction here is not simple in one sense is it Involves much more than just stopping something. We actually have to do something in its place. But in another way, it's radically simple. It's very practical. It says one way you live a long life, one day you see many good days, is to simply live a life that is characterized by righteous speech and conduct. Righteous speech and conduct. What we call obedience. The second principle then as that the fear of the Lord brings God's favor, while wickedness brings God's disfavor. Verses 15 through 17. Notice again here, there is a contrast. There's a contrast all throughout these three verses between those who fear the Lord and those who do not. Notice it says that those who fear the Lord receive actual blessings here, right? What does verse 15 say? The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous. His ears are toward their cry. So he hears their prayers. He watches over them. Then again, we see that in verse 17, the righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And so the opposite of that, right? For those who do not fear God, they receive curses, if you will. They receive just the opposite. God does not watch over them. He does not hear their prayers, nor does he deliver them. But more than this, verse 16 actually speaks to this fact that God is He's actively opposed to the evildoer. And the reason, or the purpose, if you will, is that he wants to cut their memory off of the face of the earth. In other words, God is not simply against them. He is against even the memory of them. He will blot them out from existence in memory as if they'd never been born. Generations will come and go, and yet in the end, the memory of the evildoer will fade from the minds of the righteous. The wise listener hears this and he says, I want to be one who fears the Lord. Once again, there's this sort of rhetorical device being employed here showing the wise one actually listens and obeys David's instruction. He, he lives, therefore, as a result, and the foolish one ignores his instruction and then ultimately dies. The presumption is that you and I want God to watch over us, that we want him to hear our prayers, that we want him to rescue us from the evils that come upon us. And do we not want such things? I think you guys do, right? And all of us want those things. We've been so schooled in the way of rugged American individualism, though, that we forget our Heavenly Father actually enjoys doing this for us. We don't have to come before him with the most articulate and polished prayers. His eyes are upon the righteous. His ears are attentive towards their cry. He is listening for the faintest and weakest cry even because it is his very delight to hear them, to help them. How often do you and I just think of a God who sits dispassionately in the heavens, that he looks down, he's constantly wagging his finger. He sees us in our need, he hears our cries, and yet we think of him as one who cruelly withholds all good things from those who love him. We think of him as one who does not care for us. We think perhaps he watches over others. Maybe he hears the cries of others. Maybe he will rescue somebody else, but not me. 
Not me. But the teaching of David is the contrary here. It's the exact opposite. He says that one of the ways that he instructs us in the fear of the Lord and that the result is longevity of life and good days is simply in the fact that the favor of God actually rests on the righteous. It actually rests on those who fear him. In other words, God himself will watch over the righteous. He will hear our cries. He will rescue us. It's not a maybe, beloved. It's an actual guarantee. Now, the third principle is that the fear of the Lord brings God's compassion and wickedness brings God's indifference. Now, lest you and I are just tempted to think he's just got these rose-colored glasses on. He doesn't see the world as it truly is, that, that it doesn't hold all these troubles for the righteous. He speaks pretty darn candidly to that here, doesn't he? Again, look with me at verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. He saves those who are crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers them out of them all. He keeps all his bones. Not one of them is broken. Again, notice in 18, he speaks of those who are brokenhearted, those who are crushed in spirit. And the brokenhearted here simply refers to one who is just destroyed in the will. They've lost the will to live. Their hopes are gone. They don't have any energy left in them not even to fight, and they've simply resigned themselves to despair. Well, crushed in spirit is much the same. It, it refers to one whose outlook on life is just crushed or reduced to dust. They've got nothing left. He says both of these refer to a person who has simply lost the will to live in many ways. But God is near to them. And then he speaks to the fact that the lives of the righteous are filled with afflictions, the uh, The Hebrew word for that is literally evils in verse 19. But again, notice what he says of those who are brokenhearted, those who are crushed in spirit, those who are afflicted by evils. God is near to the brokenhearted. God saves those who are crushed in spirit, verse 18. It's during those times of this deep and dark despair that God is actually near to us. We tend to see these as the times that God is distant, that he is far and away, that he is aloof, that he has forsaken us, that he will not save us. But beloved, nothing could be further from the truth. Then again, David states that though the righteous are plagued with many evils, what does he do? But he delivers us out of them all. He says the righteous keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Verse 20. Now, the language in verse 20 is poetic. It speaks to this idea that the afflicted are going to ultimately escape the difficulties of life unharmed. In the New Testament, they actually take this and apply this to Jesus very literally, where at the crucifixion, he notes that not one of his bones was broken on the cross. And yet we know that Jesus died, didn't he? And so how do we understand this in light of what verse 20 is saying here? Now, I think it might be reading into the text too much to suggest that David understood the resurrection, at least from this specific verse. But we know that Christ was raised. What this section does, and what wisdom literature does in general, is simply convey a principle. There are always exceptions to the rule. Right? I mean, how many of you have broken a bone? I'm imagining at least one, right? 
There's an exception right there. There are always exceptions to the rule. But beloved, the exceptions don't change the rule. They just prove it. The principle, what's going on behind the scenes here is that ultimately he's showing God is compassionate. God actually desires to care for his children, to care for those who fear him, that they should have every expectation to be delivered from harm. They should have every expectation to survive the difficulties of life because our God is a God who sees our distress. But more than this, he actually delivers us. And so in light of this truth, the implication that David is teasing out here is simply that you and I should naturally desire to be one who fears the Lord. We don't flee from the difficulties of life and shrink back from suffering. Rather, we trust him in the midst of suffering because he is the God who saves. When life just simply crashes down around us, we're tempted to despair, tempted to lean away from God. We actually just lean in all the more. Why? Our God is a compassionate God. He, he knows our frailty. He knows our weakness. He actually delights in restoring us. He delights in delivering us from evil. Why? Because, again, he cares for his children. And we lean in all the more knowing that he is present with us. That he's not far and aloof. He is a God who sees us. He is a God who hears us. He is a God who loves us. But ultimately, he promises to save us to the uttermost. And that's what David now focuses here in verses 20 through 21, or 21 through 22, rather. He says, even if our days are just filled with evil, we live with this awareness of the fact that there will be a final day in which evil will be done away with and that he will save us to the uttermost. We will not be condemned with the wicked, but we will have life eternal with God himself. That's the fourth and final principle in fearing the Lord, if you will. The fear of the Lord brings eternal life, but wickedness brings eternal death. Right? He says, in, starting in verse 21, look down with me once again. Evil shall slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the soul of his servants, and none of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. None of them. But this final instruction in the school of fearing the Lord is built around the utmost confidence we have in Christ. Right, the utmost confidence we have in God. God will punish the wicked. They will bear their guilt. They will be consigned to hell. He will judge them in their sins. And yet for the righteous, they will not be condemned. Is that not good news? And none of who take refuge in him will be brought to shame on the last day. This is, this is one of the great motivations we have to just continue to press forward, right? In the Christian walk, that we do not lose sight of doing good. is simply that we know that in due time we will reap our heavenly reward. That if we get robbed of everything here, we have a heavenly reward that no man can rob us of. We may suffer many hardships in life, but we know that the life to come will be in perfect fellowship with our Creator. None of these evils will be present for us. This is a great hope we have in Christ, is it not? When we place our trials, our sufferings, our persecutions, even in light of this reality, the natural reaction, the default reaction, I would say we should have is hope and praise. The question then becomes is, 
Am I one who is suffering and seeing nothing but evil days? And if so, why? Because there's two very different people here in mind. There's one who fears the Lord, and there's one who does not. And so we have to ask that question. We have to, at least if we're going to be honest. For some, they just they face constant hardships in life simply because they neglect to obey basic principles of wisdom. In other words, they just they experience trial after trial after trial because they have no desire to obey God. They wallow in despair, they make themselves a victim, and yet in reality, they've brought evil days on themselves. God has not promised blessing to those who are in continual disobedience. He has not promised blessing on those who do not fear him. If they feared the Lord, they would obey him. If they obeyed him, as a general principle, they would inherit the blessing. This is what the Apostle Peter tells us when he quotes from this psalm in 1 Peter 3. He says that just prior to quoting this psalm, there there ought not be much sympathy for the one who is suffering as a result of their own sin. He says, in other words, you shouldn't be all that surprised that you're suffering, that you're seeing days of hardship and evil. And yet he then commands them, do not return evil for evil, but instead repay evildoers with the blessing. Why? Because you were called to inherit the blessing. And that's the blessing that David speaks of here. Those who fear the Lord, again, as a general principle, will see long life and days filled with goodness. So if your life is filled with bad days, we should be asking the question, is my life an occasion for praise to God? Or again, is it a cautionary tale? Am I one who fears the Lord? Or am I one that everyone else looks at and says, don't go that way? If you need to know if you are one who fears the Lord, David laid that out relatively clearly here, right? Four principles very clearly in the psalm. Those who fear the Lord will obey him. Number two, those who fear the Lord will experience his favor upon them. Those who fear the Lord will experience his protection, his provision. Those who fear the Lord have no reason to fear on that last great day of judgment. But for others of you, I know that your life has been constantly hard. And yet I would say you're a person who fears the Lord. You face constant hardship in this life, not as a result of your own sin, but as a result of either the sins of others or just living in a fallen and broken world. Well, if you look back again on your life, you're going to find that in many ways there are thousands of things, and I mean thousands of things, that God has shown you that are what David speaks of here for those who fear the Lord. The best thing you can do is simply preach the truth to yourself. I mean, that's what David has done all throughout this psalm, is he's just preaching the truth to himself, right? He's got nothing, and yet God is good. He has no one, and yet God is ever around me. He has no food. He's stuck in a hole, and yet God will deliver him from all his troubles. Well, there are two simple, simple ways you can do this, and they are just... In light of what the Bible teaches is true of you as a Christian, you must look back, but then you must also look ahead. And so how do we look back, or what do we look back on, rather? We look back, and we just ask the question, how has God watched over me in my life? What are pains and struggles he spared me of? How has God answered my prayers? I mean, a very practical thing I encourage people to do is keep a prayer journal, You can always look back on it and see how God has answered prayer. 
But if you don't keep one, you can never do that unless you somehow remember it. I'm not good at that. Maybe you're better than me at that, but try it. You can look back and see how God has delivered you from harm, how he's protected you from evildoers. You can see how God has been near you in the midst of trials. Right? That's when we see things most clearly, isn't it? When we look back and we just examine. But also look ahead. Look ahead and see how God promises that you will not be condemned. You will not face condemnation. None of you who take refuge in the Lord will be brought to shame, not only in the here and now, but in the age to come. You will have joy no suffering can extinguish. You will have delight that no man could rob you of. And the reason for all that is simply that Christ himself encamps around those who fear him, and he rescues them, and he is their delight. So I ask in light of all this that this year you make it your resolve to be a life of one that is unbroken praise to Yahweh, to Christ himself. Do not let the troubles of your life rob you of your joy and hope. Do not let the sufferings of life rob you of the opportunity to simply instruct others on the blessedness of God, but also in the fear of the Lord that they too may live by a greater faith and experience the goodness of God for themselves. So with that in mind, let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is incredibly near to us. You are not a God who just sits back and watches it all unfold. You are a God who loves us. You are a God who wants our good. I pray that as we contemplate this reality that we would simply ask ourselves, do we have a, a worldly definition of what is good or do we have a biblical definition? And do we align ourselves with your will? Do we seek to obey you? and to love Christ more than anything else in all creation? Is he our treasure? Or is there yet something, some idol or high place in our hearts where we have protected it against Christ's domain and expected that we would still inherit the blessing? I pray now that as we go home today, that you would deliver everyone safely. Pray for those who are sick. You would help them to heal and to feel better. I pray for those who are mourning and grieving, that you would comfort them, Father. I pray for those who look at this time of year as just a a black spot on their lives where they despair and have little hope, that you would point them to the joy and delight that they can have in Christ, that ultimately this age and all the evils of this age will one day fade into nothing. It will no longer be a memory on our minds as we bask in the glory and light and presence of our creator and savior, Jesus Christ. I pray all these things in his name. Amen.